Welcome to I Will Watch Anything Once. I'm your host, Mark David Christensen. I never thought that comedy would be such a big part of my life. I mean, growing up, I always wanted to be an actor. That came at an early age. Uh, my first production as an actor was in middle school. Miss McDougal had written an original script and she cast me as a British sea captain who had a grand entrance wrestling with a fake octopus from the back of the auditorium all the way to the stage. That would probably be my first big laugh from an audience. I never knew that my life would be so immersed in comedy. It wasn't a goal. It wasn't like a lot of people that watched um, Saturday Night Live and said that's what I wanted to do. There was The Simpsons, which I loved and I still love. There was Seinfeld, which I came into a little late. And then there was Mr. Show. When I finally saw Mr. Show, David Cross and Bob Odenkirk's point of view really opened my eyes to what I thought comedy could be. Now, I never thought I could be that. Never thought I could be a funny writer. I could see myself as a funny performer, but not as a writer. In high school, the first thing I tried to write to be funny was, as the junior president, I wrote the script for the talent show. I thought it was super funny funny at the time. I look back, it's such a weird idea. I don't know how people put up with me or even thought I was funny to even let me do it. The conceit was that Pikachu had been assassinated and executives had decided that the next big thing would be a, just a glass of water. And so this whole show was around a glass of water being a celebrity. So weird. Probably not that funny. But there was no comedy scene th that I knew of growing up in Utah. I just wanted to be an actor. I never saw myself as permanently in comedy or only in comedy. Uh, I did King Lear and played a very heavy role of Kent. The closest thing I knew of improv um, before coming to Los Angeles was Whose Line Is It Anyway? Or a couple of other short form shows that were in Utah that I, I couldn't latch on to as being a, a path to take. Mainly because... They just, they seemed very clever. Never seen myself as being clever. To me, it was scenarios and situations and how people react in situations that were funny. And therefore, that's what I thought I could explore as an actor, putting myself in different circumstances and having fun within those circumstances. But I met Barbara Gray, um, a very funny stand-up comedian, and she moved to Los Angeles before me. When I moved to Los Angeles to be a serious actor, such a stupid idea if you really think about it. Because all the great actors that, are, that come from comedy are great, serious actors. But that's what I wanted to be as an actor. I never saw myself as one that was funny enough to make comedy part of his life. But Barbara Gray suggested Upright Citizens Brigade, um, the comedy theater in school that was from New York and brought out here to Los Angeles. I didn't know. I was I was very skeptical just because the word improv meant short form to me, which I didn't even know the term at the time, but it meant whose line it is anyway and being clever, and I wanted to be an actor. But um, I trusted Barbara, and I just was like, heck, I'll try it. I went to Upright Citizens Brigade, signed up for a 101 class, and I immediately fell in love with improv. I never wanted to stop doing it since day one day one of UCB 101, and I'm still doing it, luckily enough, right now. Improv allows you to be an actor and a writer in the moment, and I started to become confident in being funny. And beyond giving me the confidence to be a comedic actor and improviser on stage, UCB is the reason I've met some of my best friends here in Los Angeles. And one of those best friends is my guest on today's episode, Farley Elliott. We just watched the Kentucky Fried movie, which, if you haven't seen it, is a sketch movie, one of the rare pure sketch movies. Uh, it came out in 1977 by uh, Zucker Abrahams and Zucker, the guys who did uh, like the Naked Gun series, I think. They, did the, they did the Airplane series. Um, very goofy, very a lot of visual comedy, a lot of pratfalls, a lot of uh, double entendres, a lot of very intended nudity and this movie was like sort of the height of all of that uh, we were talking about whether or not it was the first movie they ever collaborated yeah, on I don't think we looked pulled, that up that's actually pulled up because I thought it was their first movie because <clears throat> I think it comes from their theater right I think yes. they were doing sketch at that which was the chicken fried theater yeah right? Kentucky fried theater Kentucky. yeah why do I keep saying chicken, chicken fried? fried I don't because it's, <laughs> it sounds delicious uh yeah, it may be the first film that they've ever collaborated on that sort of came out of their theater background. Dave's looking it up now. But it's a movie that I asked David if he had ever seen because I think it's so... Iconic is the wrong word, but it's a movie that has always stuck with me. It's not good, but it definitely will keep you entertained. And it's a yes. movie that I saw very young. So how, it's how always, young were you again? I was maybe 9 or 10 when I saw the Kentucky Fried movie for the first time. And for any of you 
who haven't seen it yet, I know this podcast is meant to be sort of an addendum to any any of these films, right? The, yeah. The, the listener is sort of sharing in the Yeah, I, I would hope that, that I pre, will be pre-opposed. Okay. Know, hopefully Got it. go out of their way to watch a movie. Or they've seen it before or sure. whatever. Well, you if know, you, maybe they'll revisit. If you've seen it before or you just saw it for the first time, there is a ton of nudity in the so movie. Many, so, so much many gratuitous nudity. nudity. A, lot of, a lot of hot 70s women. Yes, they are hot. Like, There's very... You're like, you're like, damn, you got a lot of very... Women for this. <laughs> like you didn't go, like you didn't go out of your way to like make like, oh, we're gonna nudity and go with like gross women to like kind of yeah. like gross out. It was like, oh, you picked like the cream of the crop. Yeah, <laughs> I think the grossest woman that they show in the entire film. There's a scene in the middle. So the middle of the film, uh, assuming you haven't want, yet watched it, is like a, a kung fu parody on a Fistful of Fury, and it's called a Fistful of Yen. It takes about thirty minutes, and. Uh, there's a part where they have to bribe one of the guards, and they bribe them with one of the ladies. And yeah. an accomplice comes in and says, "You can have any lady you want." And the first two or three are normal looking, like ladies that he would possibly sleep with. And then it's a very heavy set woman in like a thick turtleneck, <laughs> a guy dressed up as like an Excalibur swordsman, yeah. and then just like a, a midget or something. Yeah, there's something or somebody something. I think she's a bigger woman, like a like a, almost like an Amazonian woman, from what yeah, I can remember. Oh yeah, yeah, something like that. Some yeah. really goofy thing, but I. Think I think that one woman with the turtleneck is like the only really ugly woman yeah, in the, the show. Yeah, the only over like like what you would we would consider like overweight or obese, right. like kind of like characterization of like an ugly woman. Yeah, but the point being, at nine or ten years old, I found all of the pratfalls and goofy shtick to be hilarious, and had no real <laughs> concept of how much overwhelming racism and nudity is in all of this movie. Yeah! Like, that's such a mind-blowing thing to me that you watched it at nine. Because mm-hmm. I can't, like, try and look back at what I was doing nine. I was probably still, like, running around my backyard, doing pretend, and never, like, my parents would probably never let me even come near this. I mean, yeah. clearly I never saw it growing up. I mean, we talked about how, I've talked about how, like, Caddyshack was the first time I ever saw poobs in a movie, and I remember, like, late night slipping the VHS out and putting it in. Because yeah. it was like, this this is what we have in our house. Just to get that <laughs> shot. Uh, I still remember like iconic lines from Kentucky Fried Movie. I mean, you little, you were quoting. Yeah, that open the, line of the movie, the popcorn you're eating has been pissed in film at 11. <laughs> Opening line of the movie, so dumb. And there, yeah, there's just so many of those moments and that's what I remember. So a lot of the other stuff is like goofy enough or sexual enough that I, it has slipped my mind, but yeah. some of that like just silly irreverent things have always stuck with me. And I haven't seen the movie in probably 15 years. Oh, yeah. wow. Um, by the way, it is there. It was the first Zucker movie, like written, I think, mm-hmm. and the one that inst- they they wrote and yeah. became a movie. But they didn't direct this one. John Landis did. But then, oh, Airplane was their official first. Oh. One they wrote and direct. Yeah, but sort of their first big collaborative effort. Yes, in film. Yeah. Well, first of all, we should talk about the idea of like sketch as a movie, which is a, d- a dead thing now, right? Very dead. I, I I couldn't tell you. I mean, the closest thing is now because the Zuckers are still around. Mm-hmm. But the closest thing is scary movies and not another movie, right? Those kind of well, there was what movie forty one or movie forty two yes, that, that just came out made of sketches, that was a pure right? sketch movie. But most yeah, you know, scary movie or things like that have a real loose narrative, and then they play a bunch yeah. of silly games in between. I mean, Really, Kentucky Fried Movie is just... There are 30-second scenes. There's that one scene where the guy hears the alarm and he gets into his car and closes the car door and it's getting quieter and quieter and then finally he realizes that the alarm is still going off because he hasn't zipped up his fly. (laughs) He zips it up, the alarm stops, and that's it. And that's probably a 20-second scene. I was actually... I was highly enjoying that. Yeah. At the top of the... Like, with the newscast cutting away to those little, like, bits. Yeah. Because I just... I think because I just... I hadn't seen it forever because I'm pretty sure like that movie 48 or whatever it was called I mean I haven't seen it but talking to others it sounds like they it's just a series of sketches you know what I mean right as like in a row as opposed to this is just cutting cutting it can cut pretty I mean there was some long long stuff sure. in it but it was cutting away to a lot I mean they're all technically still sketches but you're seeing a lot of different formats of things one is just yeah that goofy single cam where the guy gets into his car and he hears the alarm the other one is like a seven minute setup for a morning newscast yeah where this gorilla comes on and ends up going crazy and there's other jokes before it even gets there and it starts starts this running gag of anybody in the entire movie who uh, self-identifies as being a Gemini gets, gets shot with an arrow right away and dies yeah um, oh my god and those are sort of it's funny to watch in 1977 that level of like callbacks and simple gameplay yeah. and there is 
in that early morning thing, we were kind of saying as it was happening, you're watching this gorilla come out and sit there, and it's like you're seeing a live comedy show. You're yeah. waiting for that punchline. You know it's coming, you know it's coming, and then he goes crazy, and you just <laughs> love it so much. You really do love it. Like, yeah. And it's so over the top, because, like... And I loved, like, through that whole newscast, everything's been a joke, a joke, a joke. Mm-hmm. And then when they cut to the one serious broadcast, after the girl breaks loose, they cut to the one serious broadcast. He's about, like, maybe three lines into his actual yeah. broadcast and serious news, and the girl comes breaking through the back the wall. back wall. <laughs> so good. And then, and then a crewman comes out with a two-by-four and hits the girl in the back, and it does nothing. <laughs> Just keeps on rampaging. That's a, that's a great example of like um, in UCB parlance what they call like resting the game. You that's know? Like exactly what it's, I like. I mean, we both had UCB training. Yeah, and the whole movie was full of game. Yeah, without them calling it that. But there's the pattern, and then there's the thing that like I would they're gonna keep hitting. They right. did it a couple of times with some. Well, there was big. I mean, Big Jim Slade is like a part of big the Big Jim Slade comes back. Yeah, and that, that's such a misdirect for this. Like, basically, the setup is there's a, a sketch where uh, this couple is like getting hot and heavy, and they agree to put on a record that helps guide them through like yeah. the sexual foreplay to make sure they have like the best night of their lives and the guy is sort of clumsy and he keeps having mm-hmm. this like that's kind of his game is he can't really figure out the things that the record wants him to do and then at the very end he ends up having premature ejaculation and it says in the event of premature ejaculation this record also comes equipped with Big Jim Slade <laughs> and just like a huge black man in like a, a, a speedo spe- speedo yeah crushes through this door like through the door and then takes his girlfriend away to go please her and uh, he comes back later in the movie and it's like a great great payoff yeah it's a super great payoff yeah I'm trying to think of like the other runs in it if if uh, but I'm hopefully I can remember that were very just in the scene, not in a callback. Like they were right. very following. Like there's one I just can't grab right now, and I'm trying to think that they heightened it. Oh, the 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 one that sticks out the most to me is the ladies all. Oh, I wonder if she's at home doing her plants, and she stops for a moment and has a thought of like. Oh, I wonder if when the ladies came over, like lingering smells, linger, if they hear, if they smelled, if they s- smelled that, and it cuts to when they're walking in, and it slowly builds up to like, oh, it smells like I can't remember the, the first, first lady. The first lady goes, "Oh, fish for dinner last night." <laughs> yeah. She kind of sticks up her nose, and then the second woman comes. In, it's all the ladies from her bridge club. The second woman comes in, and she goes, "Is Harvey still smoking those cigars?" And then the third lady comes in and goes, "Christ, did a cow shit in here?" <laughs> Such great, like, simple-mannered, simple hygiene. Yeah. It was so... And that's... I don't love that that existed. Because at first I thought it was going to be another, like, commercial parody. Mm-hmm. And I love that it just existed just for that joke. Right. Like, that's what I liked. Because I did like the parodies. Mm-hmm. But what made, I think, distinctly these sketches, there was just those that were strictly, like, we're just putting this up because we think this is funny. And this right. Is, we're going for this joke alone. Yeah. It's also really interesting to see just how times have changed. I mean, there's that... That scot-free board game parody that feels yeah. very SNL, but is also I mean, it's in 1977. So Kennedy was assassinated. I mean, basically a decade before, yeah. not that long ago. Imagine if like Barack Obama got assassinated today, and then in 10 years, someone made a commercial parody about a board game that chronicled his assassination. Yeah, It'd be crazy. It would. It would definitely be talked about mm-hmm. and be like, "Whoa, can you believe they just did this?" Right. It'd be you know, BuzzFeed would be all over that. <laughs> uh, Whatever BuzzFeed is in 10 years is going to be a trash. Uh, I don't know what it is. Yeah. I like that in the last recent weeks, they've really kind of. BuzzFeed's getting a lot of shit. Well, people, uh, people don't. I'll say this for BuzzFeed people don't realize that they, they've done this really interesting thing with journalism. Um, as a guy who writes, that is uh, completely changing the paradigm. So previous models have existed on ad-based sales, where it's like, yeah. I have to sell ads in print or online in order to subsidize the things I really want to be writing yeah. about. Um, and so BuzzFeed has decided what they want to do is have link bait, basically. 29 cool things to remind you that you grew up in the 90s. Yeah, I look at so many daily bases. 13 things that'll tell you you're from Michigan, whatever it is. (laughs) I mean, it's all gifts and it's all link bait and they get you onto these and they're they're all single page to run a ton of ads on and they each get 5, 7, 20 million views. And so all of that money from all those ad page clicks and views and all that kind of stuff 
goes to subsidize the rest of what BuzzFeed wants to do. So if you go to BuzzFeed.com slash longform, it's all longform journalism, super serious stuff. Um, some of it is still playful, but a lot of it is like political exposés. And um, they had a recent thing on um, – uh, mining going on in North Dakota, these like boom oh. towns that have come up from mining and, and uh, fracking and shale gas and all this sort of stuff and the crazy like booms that are coming with it like casinos and prostitutes mm-hmm. and all this sort of stuff. Um, and so that's what BuzzFeed is really, really trying to do is change that paradigm and make it so that they're not dependent financially on outside ad revenue, that they can just – we make our own listicles and that's what keeps us driving and then wow. we do the stuff we really want to do. The problem is – you say BuzzFeed and everybody goes, yeah, 13 pictures of dolphins. They never think of the long read thing, stuff yeah. that people do. I hear that. I mean, I'm not a journalist. I'm just a just a guy that loves those top tens. Very true. But yeah, like, um, that is interesting to think where that would be now. And like, and back to like how a show like this, it definitely, it's, it's a movie that I think you can, still has jokes that are mm-hmm. like very, still funny today. Yeah. Like I think any there's joke definitely jokes in it that you could definitely laugh. <clears throat> then there's stuff that's very dated. Very, very. The one that really stuck out to me and it almost didn't need this was in the courtroom when they cut to Leave It to Beaver. Yeah. I was like, you didn't need this to be Leave It to Beaver. All it needed to be was just like a the whole game is I get why you're using Leave It to Beaver because Leave It to Beaver just went off the air probably like 20 years earlier and this generation knows it and right. we're making fun of it for a reason. But the, really what's going on is just an older brother bullying a little brother that apparently are on a jury. Right. And it doesn't need the specific of leaving the theater. So I understand, you know what I mean? Yeah, they're you, you they're can, bullying each other. And you can play that same character of kid without it actually being Wally Beaver. Exactly. Um, so it's kind of funny that they got them in there to do that, but it feels very dated. It's not yes. something that sticks around. And there's, there's a part in that courtroom sketch um, that we were talking about as it was happening where they it turns into a little mini game show for a second where the guy's asking questions and they have to turn these cards over. And yeah. it's like you're referencing a game show from the 70s that just doesn't exist. Or or it's, a, or it's a reference to a game show that those guys probably grew up with. Right. That's what I was thinking. It's probably a game show from the 40s or 50s right. that was no longer on the air, but the generation that they were in knew it by growing up. Yeah. So us were like, we have no clue what you're yeah, talking about. It's literally about. 40 seconds in the movie of like, I, I have absolutely no idea what's going on. Yeah. Because you're like, you only, get the, you only get the base joke of it of like, that's a that's a game right. that you've decided to play it's in this courtroom. Yeah. Yeah. There's also, we were talking about this in the middle of the Fistful of Yen, there's two different references to uh, Detroit being the worst place. And this is in 1977. (laughs) And it's literally 46 years since that movie came out, and Detroit is still a joke. Like, that's so crazy. Detroit was a joke, I mean... I was born in 1984, so seven years before I was even born, it was made fun of in this movie, and who knows how long it was being made fun of before that. Yeah. It's like, Detroit, did you ever have a chance? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and people are like, man, Detroit's coming back. All this tech is going to move there. And it's like, people in 1977 are like, we're getting out. Yeah, you guys don't stand a chance. <laughs> There's a lot, I mean, a lot of racial stuff that would Oh, my gosh. There's yeah. tons of racial stuff. One, I, I mean, I want to touch on the... I, I still thought that, even though I know it was a total racial joke, I still think it would play if you put it on the Dave Chappelle. The one with the danger. Oh, yeah. Uh, what was the Rex, show? Rex Master, Rex something, Danger yeah. Seeker. When he puts on the clothes, like just puts on gear, the like you think he's going to get... I love, I, I love the whole setup because when he puts on the clothes, puts on a helmet, walks over train tracks, you're like, are you going to get hit by a train? Yeah. Then he walks across to a, a group to, of... I'll say this, a racially motivated... Group of all black men rolling dice, dice against yeah. the wall. Exactly. Clearly, the worst stereotype <laughs> you could possibly like create on screen for like the for right. a black man. Mm-hmm. And then he literally just steps in the middle of their game mm-hmm. and then just yells out the N word. And then runs for. His and then life. runs for his and life. And I chase. still like. I still find it fun. I find it funny, maybe with layers that I know that. There's a layer of, like, I get it, because all white men instinctually are afraid of them. <laughs> I just think they are. Because, if anything, I think that's why why there's still racism in a sense, is that we're like, oh, or we fucked, our ancestors fucked us, and they're just, you know, now we're just more full of fear. But regardless, then there's that other layer of, like, there is still that racism, and the racist thing is also still funny to me, because I'm like, I'm going, in 1977, this is how we thought. 
Yeah, and contextually, just like the JFK assassination, we were a little over a decade away from the civil rights movement, yeah. from desegregation, and all that sort of stuff. You were really working in a time period where there still wasn't a lot of like racial commingling. Mm-hmm. I was kind of taking note in my head, there's an earlier ad, a fake ad for a headache thing, where a guy goes into the lab and it's like all these people are uh, banging their heads against the wall to test to see if this headache <laughs> medicine works. And it's like an old lady who keeps getting bottles smashed over it. <laughs> and one of the doctors is a black guy. And so I think the only time in the movie when you see uh, a professional or anybody like that, any sort of normal working person who happens to be a black guy, yeah. normally it's just like, Almost a black guy stereotype that shows All up. All full of them, yeah. Yeah, so there's, like, there's one guy who's a doctor that's black in there. And yeah. I was like, that says something about this time. You'd have much more of like a racial commingling and a nice wash of different colors of people in a movie if you did that today. I would love to do a little research and find out. Um, I don't know if I can get all the questions. If maybe I'd like to find out if there were, if there were um, black writers. I'm hmm. um, part of the uh, Kentucky Fried Theater that, were, that contributed it. Right. Because like, something like Blazing Saddles, which is so iconic, I think what makes it mo- uh, really iconic is that Richard Pryor was a writer. Mm-hmm. And, the, and I, don't, I mean, I don't know all the other writers. I don't think he was the only black writer. Mm, I don't know. Pr- I, mean, he, I, I know I, that he wrote on it, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I don't know the other writers either. Writers, yeah. But I'm wondering if they contributed. Because you watch something like that, and they're playing into such stereotypes. Mm-hmm. But you're like... You're on set, so you have to be aware of it, right? Right. That you're playing a stereotype of, of your of your own race. Right. So there's always that that question to me of like, I don't know. I'd love. I wish I could meet somebody that was in a movie that had to play a stereotype. Like at that time, chose to play a stereotype yeah. and be like, what was your what was the thought process? Yeah. How did you actually play it? I mean, in Fistful of Yen, I mean, everybody is playing a oh my uh, God. Chinese kung fu stereotype. It was so horrible. The, I mean, rolling the L's. I mean, everything is a yeah. crazy Chinese stereotype. And I felt the same way. Anybody who gets a line that has to talk like that, it's like, man, are you cool with this? Yeah. How could you be in some sense? But again, it's like, I don't know. I mean, yeah. one, I day, s- one day maybe I have to play a cracker. I sometimes <laughs> feel this way about modern day little people in films. I feel like they're kind of the yeah. last bastion of like consistently working groups of people that have to play into a stereotype. And even in Kentucky Fried Movie, there's that one scene where all the Catholic girls are chained up to the wall and there's a little person in a clown outfit just whipping them (laughs) mercilessly. And it is inherently funny because of the proportions of this person. They're a grown grown person (laughs) that is not of what we consider average. There's always something that you're like... You're like, that's funny. It's so out of place. It's yeah. the unexpected, and that's what makes it funny. But I feel like, you know, in normal working situations, outside of, say, sort of Dinklage and Game of Thrones, which was an iconic Dinklage, role, Dinklage probably. since Station Agent. I think he changed the game. Yeah. When I mean, as soon as Station Agent came, and you were so compelled by his character, and not that he was a, uh, a little person. A little, because you forgot, in a sense, you just were never paying attention to that. Right. You just saw him as a human being. Mm-hmm. It changed the game, I think, for at least made the step forward that we're like, oh, we don't look at you. Right. Well, that you're just that. Yeah. And then you look at like the trailer for Wolf but, on Wall Street, and there's yes. like, there's, and there's a, a guy classic gag. But that's what I was gonna say. Um, Peter Dinklage before doing the Station Agent, he's in a movie. It's a great movie called um, Living in Oblivion. And the whole concept is they're doing a dream sequence in it. It's about it's a movie about making a movie, mm-hmm. and they do a dream sequence in it where Dinklage has to play a midget in the dream sequence, and it becomes like I think. From what I remember, it becomes a debate about like, like, why the hell am I in this oh. as like as this little person? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's really and it's really funny. Yeah, but it's definitely a commentary on that idea. Yeah, of like, what? Why am I associated with this when I'm actually a living person? Right. I have this. I go. I go through the same things you do. Yeah, and I want to be taken seriously <laughs> exactly. as an actor. So I do agree. It's great that with Game of Thrones, it's brought him. It's not only brought him to the forefront and changed things. It's like, look, I want accolades because right. of this shit. Because yeah. I'm killing it. Yeah. He is killing I'm not just the first person who has refused to play into the stereotype. I'm doing a good enough job that I'm getting rewarded for it. Yeah. I mean, that says a lot. I mean, even as recently as a few years ago, what was that show with Ricky Gervais where he had like Oh, a, it's, a it's little... amazing. I haven't... It's, it's the guy that played... It's Warwick Davis. Yes. It's called uh, Life is... Is it Life is Short? Yeah, I think it's Life is Short. And I've seen... I sadly have not seen the whole series yet. I haven't seen any of it. It's... The clips from it I've seen are just out of, my, out of your mind fucking good. Yeah. And I want to hear this... I want to see the special because I saw a clip from it that with uh, Val Kilmer is in it. Yeah. And he does this thing because he's coming to visit and... Uh, <laughs> 
It's one of my favorite things I've seen online in a long time from a clip. He's showing up to his office to talk because our friends from Willow. Yeah. And before they go into the office to meet uh, Warwick's secretary, he's like, Val Kilmer's like, oh, I, well, I want to do this thing. And he's like, oh, sure, what? He takes out a Batman mask and puts it on and walks in. And he wants her to be excited. And he's like, look who it is. And, and like, Val Kilmer's quiet through the whole thing. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. And she calls, she's like, is it Michael Keaton? Is it... George Clooney, she and she can part. never get Val, and it's <laughs> it's so sad and perfect. Yeah. So like, yeah, and like, you take that, and Warwick paints himself in such a bad light in that movie. Mm-hmm. It's hilarious. Yeah, but it, yeah, I think that's another example of somebody trying to break that paradigm, you know? Yeah. And as an iconic little person that you already know, Warwick Davis. Yeah. Didn't have you seen the Mark Twain? Uh, I haven't. Out? I really want. I think it's done now. Yeah, here in LA. I, I've heard. I, I heard it was pretty actually mind-bogglingly amazing. Yeah, Danny Cohen just went. Oh, um, Joe, so he said it was really good, but very weird. And he answers questions afterwards as Mark Twain, Val Kilmer does. Yeah, that he's just in character the whole time. He kind of sometimes will like I've heard meander around before the show as Mark Twain. He just spends hours trying to be Mark Twain on stage, essentially. Doing half a show and then improvising the other half. Do you think he was he did that because he saw the success of Hal Holbrook? I don't know. What is that? Hal Holbrook took forever to like be successful, but he's known for his Mark Twain on oh. stage. They did a tour and he played Mark Twain. Oh, interesting. And then like he didn't he like he's he's a great actor. He just didn't get him, like he's old age. Right. Got nominated. You know what I mean for an Oscar. I had heard that. So that was more of a joke that I didn't right. land. <laughs> <laughs> I had heard that Kilmer was doing a Mark Twain biopic movie. Really? And that's why he's doing that? That's why he's been doing it. That's pretty. That's the rumor that I As a sort of slight tie-in to what we were talking about before, I also saw the movie Chucky very young. Like probably... Really? That would terrify Probably me. eight years old. I mean, I'm still and terrified it, by horror movies. Yeah, I'm still... And it, I was wondering, like, it may... I wonder if that has anything to do with my still being terrified at horror movies. I don't do well in, in scary movie situations. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I saw Chucky so young. So, so young. And I don't know why I ended up watching these movies. So <laughs> Poor babysitters. <laughs> yeah. Bad girls who wanted to make out with their boyfriends instead of telling me what not to watch, I guess. Just watch Chucky so I can make out. Is that yeah, what yeah. happened? Did you... Do you have, like, a movie that you thought was really, like, a seminal thing that you watched when you were very young that still stuck with you? It just always, like, still sticks with me? Like, yeah, like, what's what's one of the first, like, young movies, movies you watched when you were young that really still resonates with you? I feel like there's a, a few. Uh, weirdly, I don't know why, Big Trouble in Little China always was... Yeah? There's something... Kurt Russell? Yeah, like, yeah. And, and, like... I watch it now and I appreciate it way more for certain other elements. So but as a kid, I was just, it was such a crazy, fun world that I wanted to like exist in okay. with these characters. Even though the scary elements, like when they're like, I remember as a kid, I can distinctly, like, when I go back and watch these movies, like, oh, during this moment, I was fucking terrified. And it's not even that terrifying. They just are like underwater with a bunch of dead bodies, you know what I mean? Yeah. And people that had been like dead. And I was just like, whoa. But I don't know. There, there's something about that movie. That, and there's just like little things, like how you've like little things that stood out always mm-hmm. that I remember. And then watching it again later as an early age, you're like, holy shit, I didn't remember any of this movie. Right. <laughs> yeah. The, there's main plot points or things that you've completely breezed over. Yeah. Because it wasn't, it's almost like you couldn't get through that fine mesh filter of your, like, youthful brain. Exactly. Yeah. And you just latched on to certain things. Uh-huh. Like, all I can remember was, like, the powers, these, like, the villains had. Yeah, the things I was that like, were easily I was like, digestible. This guy does electricity, this guy blows himself up. Right. Like, I was just like, this is badass. <laughs> That's what I choose to remember. <laughs> yeah. From a movie that is otherwise very morbid. You very, like, yeah, yeah it's very bad. John Carpenter. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I mean, Ninja Turtles was definitely a definitive moment for me. Because it was something I already loved. It made it to... It was the first time something I'd already previously loved being made into a movie. There's two movies, right? There's Secrets of the Use. That's the second one. That's the second one. Yeah. And the first one is just Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, and that one's awesome. The second one is the one that has Vanilla Ice? Yeah. Yeah. That's That's when it started falling out. That's when I Even remember. as a kid, you were just like, well, I'd like to see what year or how old I was because I remember even as a kid when they didn't do Bebop and Rocksteady being really pissed off about that. Right. Like, who the fuck is this token Razor? <laughs> and then growing up, just getting more and more pissed off that they didn't use the classic characters. That everyone knew. It was like, why didn't you do that? There was, there was yeah. no reason not to. Yeah. Other than you made this stupid joke about, like, instead of, like, making these real vicious... They became like they were like we used babies 
There's a baby wolf and a baby snapping turtle, and they're just dumb villains. And I was boring. Yeah, you even as a kid, you're like lame. Yeah. Lame as shit, even though Ninja Turtle 2's... I cannot talk right now. <laughs> Ninja Turtles 2 has one of my favorite lines. Which is? There's, they get into... They're breaking in because Raphael has been kidnapped by the Foot Clan. They finally mm-hmm. get into him, and they're like... They, they're walk, they're like sneaking up onto him as he's tied up, and they're like, it's quiet. It's a little too quiet. Sneak up a little bit further. Hey, it's Raph. A little, a little too, too Raph. Raph. <laughs> I still think that is so... <laughs> Funny. That is so like is literally really me laughing. I'm laughing yeah. out of computer joy. How funny I think that joke is. It's really funny. It's such like an old timey yeah. joke. It's like a vaudeville. Joke. Yes, exactly. They're yeah. literally doing a vaudeville, and I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, this is great. That's great. Uh, I watched a lot of. It makes me feel like I really did watch a lot more sketch than I thought I did growing up. I used to watch Ray Stevens. Do you ever watch Ray Stevens? The only reason I know Ray Stevens, and I, do, I can't say I ever watched it, is my yeah. dad had a VHS yeah. of Ray Stevens. We had an old, like, best of VHS Ray yeah. Stevens that we wore. I, me and my brother and my sister could probably <laughs> really? could probably do every single one of those That's sketches. Pretty Some nice. of them were songs, the Mississippi Squirrel Revival. I mean, they were very, like, wow. pro-Christianity. They were... Super pro-American. I ain't sitting up with the dead no more. I mean, all these crazy Whoa. songs and sketches. That's crazy. That I completely remember. I could tell you song like lyrics from them. Yeah, we just wear that tape out of Ray Stevens. Wow. I also got into stand-up CDs pretty early. I I hear that a lot, and I and I I did have a mo- well, well. I'll let you go, and then I'll. It was always during the summer. And my dad had like a sort of country western influence, which is where Ray Stevens comes from. And mm-hmm. um, there was a summer when I was probably eh, 10 or 11 and right around that time and I got really into uh, the Here's Your the first Here's Your Sign album by Bill Engvall mm-hmm. and uh, early Jeff Foxworthy which sounds wow. so weird to say but you know early Jeff Foxworthy early when he still had that edge yeah. and, uh, he didn't he didn't sell out for those redneck jokes yeah I don't know what it is about stuff like that but I can remember very clearly being so enthralled by the way that jokes were set up and the way that Bill Engvall would tell these stories and still remember jokes like entire setups That's to jokes awesome. and stuff from these old old CDs and then Bill Engvall and of course Fox where they went on to do um, the blue collar comedy tour you know in the mid 2000s yeah. or whatever and they had a couple other guys with the Ron White and somebody, Larry the Cable Guy. And it was interesting to see all four of them go up again. Foxworthy had new material. He had been doing TV for a while. Ron White was kind of the edgy one. He had uh, whiskey glasses hand the whole time. Larry the Cable Guy was like the guy who was a character. Yeah. And then they went to Bill Engvall and Bill Engvall had the same exact material probably 12 years later. And I watched Blue Collar Comedy Tour maybe in theaters when it was when they packaged it as like a, a full concert yeah. movie uh, and I could have sat in that theater for the first time and recited half of his sh- his show he was just a guy who over the course of 15 years wrote a really great hour and then never got away from that hour God bless him he made a living that's but that's what I do but that's it he's not a real it's comedian like you're punching in you're punching in yeah it's literally like you turned your your comedy into a day job mm-hmm. as opposed to like a career in a yeah sense, in a absolutely way. yeah he knows yeah, exactly so. what he's out there to do and it's this it's word for word the same joke and it's not even like a tribute band you know you might go to see I'm gonna go see the Rolling Stones because they have seven songs I really want to hear I don't want to hear the same seven jokes from Bill Engvall over the course of 12 <laughs> years I want to hear new material it's interesting. I mean, I got into the stand-up way late. I think yeah. college. Oh, wow. I remember Woody Allen got me into it because I liked Woody Allen movies, and I found out he did stand-up, and I bought his, and that blew my mind. But then Lewis Black was my <clears> first. Yeah. I bought both the albums. I literally was like painting the house and had my parents listen to it, and I can't believe I was that free to be like, let's listen to Lewis Black while we paint the house. Right. And like they were laughing. My I love, my dad always has that reaction. It's really funny. If he, even if it's crude, and he he'll admit that he enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. He'll still have to throw in the like, I like it, but little. little a little, a little, a little harsh. Yeah, a little, right. a little could have dealt less, less f words. And you're right. like, but you still enjoy yeah. it. My dad says he hates The Simpsons and he laughs at least once an episode. Like, <laughs> same so same exact idea. But I'm looking back earlier night now that like most of my comedy coming growing up was Dorf on Golf, Tim Conway. Amazing. We had those in the house. And then I can't think of this right now. It might be the, the Robinsons. There's this VHS that we had mm-hmm. and it was one guy would do characters and it was called something like Robinson's Family Reunion. I'd love to find out. I'd be surprised if it was What's-His-Name. 
Um, what's the guy that improvised everything? That comedian, Fred Willard. Not Fred Willard. He just recently passed away, and I'm, my dad loves the guy. And I'm. <laughs> oh, oh, kind of heavy set guy. Yeah, uh, I, I'm blanking on the name, but I know who you're talking. I'm about. so mad. I mean, which makes for a great podcast. Yeah, exactly. You can't remember who the yeah. um, Winters. Oh, Jonathan Winters. Yeah, Jonathan Winters. I'm like. Was it him? Because, but it was like a guy that just did these characters. I remember, like, as a kid going, oh, I'm bored by this. Right. And now, looking at what I do now, it's like that had some weird, unbeknownst influence. I grew up really close to the border of Canada, and so about a third of our stations were Canadian stations. We'd get stuff coming over from, like, Ontario all the time. You'd watch Hockey Night in Canada and, um,. All that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. there was a Canadian sketch show, kind of a one-guy sketch show thing called The Red Green Show that I used to watch. I know The Red Green Show. It's great. It's I, I mean, I sadly have not watched a lot of the episodes. Yeah. Every time I've seen it, super funny. So funny. And the game is so clear. I mean, he's, he's basically the sort of the precursor to Tim Allen's home improvement from a Canadian perspective. And I was in, I guess three years ago now, I was in Montreal with my mm-hmm. girlfriend, and we were sitting in the hotel room, and the Red Green show was on, and we were just passing by, and I was like, you have to stop on this. And she is from Southern California, so she had no idea what this show was, and immediately I was back into it. I was like, I know he's got to go to the Moose Lodge, this is his friend, yeah. he's got to help him like get this truck unstuck, and they're going to have some like Mr. Bean level of contraption to try yeah. to get them out of the mud. I mean, it's every stupid bit you could think of repeated a thousand times. And I loved, what was, he had the nephew? The dirty yeah. nephew that was just like always put in like a weird corner or like something made him feel awkward. Yep, a really awkward kind of the precursor to like what a nerdy teenager was as his nephew. I remember the first, um, the first joke I ever came up with. And what was that? The first joke I ever wrote down, it wasn't even like a setup and punchline, it was just, well I guess sort of was. The idea would be like, how do you know that you're actually you've actually gone crazy mm-hmm. and it's um, when you hear the voice in your head but you have to ask yourself to repeat yourself <laughs> you're so crazy that you don't even hear the voice in your head so you have to repeat yourself <laughs> <laughs> you're like <laughs> yeah when did you write that oh probably 12 13 that's awesome yeah I can't even I mean I was a bit of a class clown I don't think I ever wrote anything. But I definitely knew, like, when you start to realize, oh, I can get a laugh. I think mine was probably a mechanism, too. A defense mechanism, being a short kid. Totally. If you can get a consistent laugh from a crowd of people, there's so much that you don't have to worry about anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just immediate acceptance. Because it has this weird, magical, shamanistic quality to it. A lot of people know what comedy is. And a lot of people can say things that will occasionally be funny. But to be the person who can consistently be on top of a joke, constantly making a group of people laugh, always at the forefront of what is funny within a group of people, mm-hmm. I think there's a magic to it to people who aren't funny or don't try to be funny. And they look at it with a certain amount of reverence and you don't get as bullied or you don't get as uh, ostracized as you yeah. would if you didn't bring that to the table. I always, I always felt, too, this is a weird thing to bring up, but... Hated at the time. I probably am fine with it now, but growing up, I'm not gonna say names. I don't know. Not like they give they, like they're gonna listen to this, but there was always this like Daryl Morris. Why'd you say his name? <laughs> <laughs> Early on, I was very like held it high, being able to make people laugh yeah. on your own accord. Because mm-hmm. there was always this kid like in high school growing up, that he would just constantly know when to inject like a quote from The Simpsons yeah. or something. He'd inject it as though it was his own, mm-hmm. but I knew it wasn't, mm-hmm. and it would get laughs, and I would be so fucking furious about it. Would you ever I would to, like, talk so, it out? I never called it out like at the moment, but I would always talk shit. Because it was to me, it was like it was the same. It would be the same thing as like a if like when you see these battles on stand up and somebody uses your material. To me, I'm like you're using these. You're using a show one I already hold and revere, Mm -hmm. and you're using what they created that's supposed to bring you enjoyment for your own fucking like selfish purpose in my sense, like to get a laugh that you don't, you didn't earn. You recognize that it's stealing. Yeah, right away. It it was so. It would. It would literally infuriate me. There's an old story, going back to Ron White for a second, that he was coming up in the Texas comedy circuit, and he started to get some national recognition, but was still spending time, a lot of time, doing shows down in Texas, and was talking to a lot of the other comics about how pretty soon he was going to be out of there, and he was feeling pretty big for his britches. 
And so one night at a show in Austin, one of the other comics who had seen Ron and was doing the circuit with him as well and knew basically his entire routine because he'd seen him enough, was going up before Ron White and just said, fuck it, and went up and did Ron's routine cover to cover. Wow. Did every joke, every setup, the whole thing, staring at Ron in the back of the stage the whole time, gets a ton of laughs, and then walks off, and the MC goes, ladies and gentlemen, your next comedian, Ron White, and Ron has to go up knowing his entire 40-minute set has just been co-opted from the very beginning. Whoa. And it was a great moment of, like, you're not as big as you think you are, you know? And really got Whoa. him back, and he was apparently furious for weeks and weeks and weeks about Wow. Yeah, amazing. That's Because <laughs> I've always dreamed, and this is like a weird dream of mine, and I, the only thing the only thing that keeps me from doing it is because I love the improv community too mm-hmm. much to, to do this, to ostracize myself, mm-hmm. but I've always had the dream to create a team. I think it could only happen once. Create yeah. a team of improvisers. We call ourselves either copycat or doppelganger. Mm-hmm. You go in, and your whole purpose is you, you're set up before a team. You watch their whole set. And then when you go up, you attempt to copy that exact set <laughs> verbatim as possible. Yeah. And then that's it. And yeah. that's it. And to me, it would just be one big, huge, not and not the joke that they are bad or good. Uh-huh. Just the joke is we're a copycat. That's yeah. what we told you at the top of the fucking shows. We're a copycat. <laughs> and to do it to the best of your ability. Yeah, yeah. Like that. I still would love to do it. Even in saying it right now, I would still be willing to if people like you get at least seven people together that'd be like, okay, I'm willing to do this the one time. If you did it once, it'd be great. I'd love to yeah. do that. We do in college we would do short form uh, comedy sports style. So it would be two halves. And in between halves, each team would go into the back and would come up with sort of a six to 90 second sketch and it would be musical based or something super a simple premise and simple game and every once in a while say one of the teams figured out their sketch really early or they said fuck it we're never doing a sketch they'd wait around for the other team to get their sketch solidified and start to practice it a few mm-hmm. times. and they would go out and be like hey we're coming out we're coming on before you guys so we want to see your sketch and then every other individual person in the group that hadn't been practicing the sketch their job was just to figure out basically to mime one person on the other team and go let's figure out all the movements they do all the lines they say so the team that went and just watched the, the second team that first team would go up and just do that entire sketch in front of them wow. they would go up and be like okay I'm gonna watch Larry and you're gonna watch Sarah and you're gonna watch Mike and then you everyone individually would do the roles and do that entire sketch on stage so the other team would have nothing to do. Oh my god! And it's, it's the so same. Yeah, just come on out. You're next up. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So silly. That is super silly and such like a fuck. Like a <laughs> fuck you right now. That's how you know you've uh, you've gotten a little bit sick of the form that you're doing. Yes. When you have to start fucking with it a little bit. We just saw an improv show tonight where a lot of it was people breaking outside of the normal yeah and the only way that I think that can work just to be somewhat knowledgeable for me that's no longer funny to me I'm an insider but I'm like I'm more thrilled when I watch you use the tools that you have Mm -hmm. and go on a high wire in front of me as opposed to call out the high wire just comment the Zuckerbergers they went on a lot of improvising they went on (laughs) (laughs) yeah I wonder if they did or not, or if they were just mainly writers. I like the. I, I, I mean, I just need to do research on them. Yeah, I would imagine it was mostly writing. I mean, I'm a, I would assume so too. Just because of the way, I mean, I would hesitate to say that it's like a tightly knit movie in any sense, but the way that they consistently revert to callbacks, the yes. way that everything is almost everything is a, a play on words yeah, in yeah, some yeah, way. Yeah. Linda Chambers recreating a classic role and it's her rolling down a hill. I mean, yeah. That stuff is clearly three stone dudes in a room just thinking it's so silly and funny and something they've never seen before. Yeah. And maybe... I kept thinking that I think that movie would be much better seeing it on a big screen too. Yeah. Because the whole format is you're building up to a... You're about to see a movie. Mm-hmm. They do the animation where like the curtains come down and yeah. um, you know, it's the now for your future attraction and all that sort of stuff. They play it as if you are having the full experience of being in a movie theater with yeah. commercials beforehand and features and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I fun. would love to see it alive with an audience. Yeah. I mean, just to see the response. I have to say I really liked the black exploitation stuff was really funny. Yeah. Because but then I look at like black the the recent re- the make of black 
dynamite. Mm -hmm. And it's like now it can be more exploited, the mm -hmm. idea of black exploitation. But the one with the, the girl, the pretty much, uh, what's her name, Fox, uh, Pam Greer character, yeah. which is clearly just the Pam Greer character, and then marrying a Jew. Yeah. A Jewish Orthodox Jewish, guy. Yeah, that was like almost straight up like I would expect Woody Allen have done something similar. Totally, yeah. And what is it? Cleopatra Schwartz? Yeah, Cleopatra. Such a great name. And yeah. it's still funny. Yeah. Cleopatra yeah. Schwartz. Yeah. As she burns the ghetto to the ground, yeah. he studies the Talmud oh. at night. <laughs> so good. And I love that at the end it was like him just slightly assisting her. <laughs> like Feeding her bullets? Are you feeding please feeding that fucking mini gun? Yeah, you're like, what? And they're like hiding in the shadows so he can knock out that other guy. With, a, with a glass bottle. Yeah. Like, there's no gunplay. Yeah. So funny. And he just had like that weird, like, just like, please smile. <laughs> like, content. Just content. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And that's, in a funny way, a uh, theme that I think you still see sometimes the set of meek white guy with the very imposing black woman. Very. It's out in um, uh, um, Napoleon Dynamite. There yes. was that same idea. Exact same idea. Yeah, a very endearing but commandeering black woman and then the meek white guy who's all about it. Yeah, he's just, just happy. happy smile on his yeah, face. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Yeah. I, I, like, you literally look on their face says, I won the lottery. Yeah. Yeah, and some of those, they're still stereotypes, but some of those things are around still and seem a little so, bit yeah. timeless. Absolutely. I think they will be timeless because yeah. there's always going to be those differences that regardless of us calling them racist or stereotypes it's like there's those differences right you can't leave them all. you can't to, like and they're always going to be funny putting the, that pair together mm -hmm. until that day that we're completely which I don't know when everyone's great but yeah I think there's a deeper thing to it beyond the stereotypes especially with like Cleopatra Schwartz it's taking those two stereotypes what they are mm -hmm. but really if you break it down it doesn't necessarily even have to be those stereotypes because really it comes down to a woman that's very assertive. Mm -hmm. I'm a very assertive fucking woman to the point where I'm going to fight for my fucking my neighborhood. Yeah. And then a guy that's like, um, I'm the shy, like, I'm really actually a shy guy that's just like, well, let people just do what they want. Right, yeah, you could strip out of any stereotypical yeah. sort of thing and have the same relationship. Yeah, that, that point of view. Absolutely. It's a movie style that you don't see that often. It's a level of, like, racial and social commentary that you don't see that often. No. Nope. And it's also just a level of pure goofiness that you don't see that You often. don't see, and when people do try to pull it, I feel like they don't go as goofy anymore. Right. I think the closest thing I can think of his stepbrothers allowing the goofy and like yeah. Anchorman they allow their goofy to they, right. but they, again it's not even that level though right. there's none of these there's no there's no non sequiturs in those movies for the most part right do you know what I mean even if they have like a thing like singing Afternoon Delight mm -hmm. it still feels grounded in those characters right. as opposed to a complete like we're gonna bounce over here this character you will never see again mm -hmm. ever in the movies just gonna do a random thing yeah. that will make you laugh but it will have nothing to do with the rest right. of the movie or a movie I haven't seen this as the end but I feel like a movie like that that is a comedy movie that feels very we're gonna throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and you know it'll all be goofy and hopefully some of it'll make you laugh I mean that level of humor is getting your balls stuck in a rat trap or something it's yeah. not as silly and goofy as a movie like Kentucky Fried Movie I agree I don't know if, if that will ever I don't know if there are any I can't see a director currently or a comedy director that's gonna go play with that yeah they, I mean, they've tried to in these scary movies, but to me, the scary movies and the not another teen movie, all it becomes instead of we're gonna really explore a funny like idea out of a movie, it just becomes remember this, and then we put like a weird funny twist on it, or we just remove one element and replace it with another. Right. It doesn't, but it never feels like a real true exploration of what we find funny. Yeah, and a little bit of what we were saying before that idea that a lot of the jokes are timeless. You know, there's, there's social elements to it, things that maybe uh, out of context from the 1970s feel a little bit clunky, but there's ultimately a lot of talk about relationships and love and yeah. sex and things that are evergreen. You don't have to worry about trying to decode it because the time period that you're in makes sense. Some of it is, you know, the game show part of the yeah. room scene. Yeah, but then the rest of the court scene is just full of wordplay exactly yeah and you can watch that scene in 50 years and you know like, okay, the yeah. same level that you know now I really liked the joke about let me check my briefs yeah, they're, so they're good so stupid but love it so dumb. <laughs> so dumb. cool man well, thanks, I think, for, well, thanks for watching it with me yo thank you for uh, having um, thank you for 
sharing it with me because I really I highly enjoy it and I'd like to I, I think it is definitely a precursor to what became what I think sort of classic or airplane or airplane tune mm-hmm. and make a gun yeah you can see those elements that just they sharpen them later on right and I also feel like they probably had a lot less early studio intervention that said yes. you have to make this into a narrative you have to craft this into something that's more palatable they just went crazy their first time yeah and good for them. Why not? You know, they, yeah. there are a lot of, I think, great directors. You could speak to this more than I could. Directors and writers who come out of the gate with their most ambitious film because why not? They've got nothing yeah. to lose. There's and plenty then of they, that. And then they find ways to crowbar what they really like from those first films into things that are more palatable for a regular group. Yeah, completely true. I think we'll end on a great Donald Sutherland cameo. <laughs> An amazing Donald Sutherland. The, the clumsy, clumsy waiter. waiter. A, a ponytailed Donald Sutherland. Sutherland as a clumsy waiter dropping a birthday cake, and that's all you see. And not even dropping it, just dropping it. Dropping it on a table and having his face fall into (laughs) Into it. Then attempting to get back up and falling over (laughs) again. Slipping backwards with it. And then he gets a a thanks in the credits alongside Bill Bixby, and that's all you see of Donald Sutherland. I loved that. Perfect. Thanks again, Farley. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening to I Will Watch Anything Once. Uh, along with being just a funny friend of mine, Farley Elliott is a food writer here in Los Angeles. You can follow him on Twitter at OverOverUnder or go to his direct website at OverOverUnder.com. He regularly writes for Eater LA, LA Magazine, LA Weekly, all on food. I personally call him a food Sherpa. He's guided me to great food many times. The character-based movie that I thought was Jonathan Winters um, was far from that. I was completely wrong. I contacted my dad and he informed me that it was an LDS movie called The Farley Family Reunion. Pretty funny that it was The Farley Family Reunion when I have Farley on. Um, I'm actually having my father send me that video so I can review it again and see if it was even as funny as I slightly thought it was. If you are enjoying I Will Watch Anything Once, please subscribe on iTunes, rate, and review. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at IWWAO, as well as Tumblr at IWillWatchAnythingOnce.tumblr.com. And again, if you are a listener and you have suggestions for movies that I should watch, please feel free to email me at IWillWatchAnythingOnce at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening, and remember, if you haven't seen it once, you can't complain. You know I don't like Disneyland, right? Yeah, you're one of the very few people that, that I'll be friends with because of that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I literally had a girl that I was recently, previously dating, like a couple months ago, tell me that she didn't like Disneyland. And it was that moment she was like, do you not like me because of that? I pretty much was like, you're fine. But in my brain, I'm going. Yeah, that's a big it's deal. Kind of a, it's going to cause a problem later because <laughs> I'm going to want to go. And if you don't come, it's going to be bummer. Yeah. <laughs> I've dated girls before where it's like, well, we don't have to talk about it now, but this is going to be an issue later. Uh, yeah. I feel like any girl who's like, I just, all I do is eat healthy and I don't really drink. I'd be like, well, we got a few dates in us and that is about it. You're going to see me drinking. That's it. You're going to see me drinking and eating dumb food. <laughs>